Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode three of the Remedial Studies podcast. Today, we're going to be discussing George R.R. R. Martin's book series, A Song of Ice and Fire. There will be spoilers. I'm going to get that right out of the way right now. We're going to talk about pretty much everything. You've had five or six years to read Dance with Dragons, and if it can take him 10 years to write a book, it can take you less time than that to read one. I'm Rachel. And I'm Hannah, the other host. God help us all. <laughs> uh, you're a great co-host, Hannah. Today, I'm feeling a little, I'm feeling a little flaky. I'm just going to warn, I feel like I'm just going to warn everybody right off the bat, but I'm excited to talk about A Song of Ice and Fire and everything that we have planned today. Yeah, just full disclosure, everybody. We're recording this at like nine o'clock on a weeknight, which is a new thing for us. You know, when you start a podcast, pretty much everything you do is a new thing. Um, Hopefully we will grow out of that, though. Um, But today... Um, specifically, we're going to be talking about uh, reconstruction versus deconstruction of tropes. Um, we mentioned this in the last episode in sort of our preview for this one. George R. R. Martin is kind of known for being the American version of Tolkien, which I feel is quite a loaded phrase, depending on if you like Lord of the Rings or not. But what I really wanted to dive into if I may, Hannah, is what is the difference between reconstruction and deconstruction? Because in my mind, I think George R. R. Martin is much more invested in reconstructing tropes than just tearing everything to the ground. I think that's fair. I mean, I don't think you can be called the American Tolkien if you're just lighting every fantasy trope on fire. If you just throw a Molotov cocktail into a hobbit hole and just hope for the best. Yeah, that's that's not that is not what is happening here. <laughs> There's some definitely recognizable some recognizable tropes that are really key to the genre and I think it's written from a place of of love but also maybe someone who is maybe more invested in like bringing a gritty, I hate the word gritty, but gritty realism element to to the yeah. genre. Maybe maybe the word I'm looking for is practicality. I think that that's better than realism because I really think and and I think George R. R. Martin probably would agree with this. The point of fantasy is not realism. Right. The whole point of fantasy is that you can suspend your disbelief. But I do think that 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 is a good word. Practicality is probably a much better term to describe the sort of vibe that he's going for. And I think where that really starts in book one is is killing Ned. Yes. Because because I feel like if you put Ned Stark and not just because he's played by Sean Bean, if you put Ned Stark in something like Lord of the Rings especially if you put him in the sort of political in in political turmoil arenas like Gondor or Rohan he he could be a very good central focus character of somebody who can work within the system and 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 make it a better i hate this word but purer place to live like he would totally be that guy that's like no we should just keep going but like not in a way where um Denethor, I almost totally lost that name, um, where Denethor does, where he essentially sends this son that he doesn't even really want anymore to die mm-hmm. to prove that he's willing to do anything. So so I guess with me, and I remember when, we're going to talk a little bit about the TV show, 
I haven't seen the last two seasons. I know you've seen none of it, Hannah. No, so I started reading the book several years ago when I was working a 2 a.m. to 6 a.m. desk shift at a dorm. I remember those times. I needed something to read. And I remember I finished the book and I realized it was a, there's a show tie-in and I demanded the second book from the guy who had loaned me the first book and he's like, oh, I'm not done with it yet. And I was like, you're dead to me. (laughs) Never do that. Never do that. That's so shitty. I'm not going to name any names, but he knows who he is. He he probably doesn't. <laughs> but anyway, I I was excited to watch the show, but then uh, some things happened. I heard some things about the show, and I completely lost any desire to partake. I think eventually, as George R. R. Martin did, didn't he break with the showrunners? I think so. I think he did, because they've gone past Dance with Dragons now. So the two showrunners are kind of just running their own show, in essence. Like, they're not beholden to anything. There's been some some people that kind of say that he has told them what he's going to yeah, do. Yeah, I've heard that. I don't feel that's true. He may change. I feel like he's capable of changing the plot out of spite. I right I and, and like at the end of the day it's his book yeah i see that in his in his face that he would he would do it to spite them because i don't think he's liked some of the decisions they've made right i remember there was one he mentioned specifically at a con i don't remember which one but it was about how they changed who rob marries yeah in the show and then they made they killed her off right at the red wedding and he made a point of saying that the woman that he married is still alive. Yeah. In canon. I have also heard that he got mad because they whitewashed that character. I think she's actually maybe supposed to be a person of color. But I, I'm not sure. I'm going to have to do some follow-up on that. Yeah, there's there's a lot of... I, I take a lot of issue with the show that I, I didn't really notice. I watched the first season, having never read anything about the books. Uh, then I went back and I read the first book. Actually, that's a lie. I listened to the first book. The audiobooks are phenomenal, by the way, if you want to get into it. But I remember that first scene, that first chapter we have with Danny, Daenerys. And there's the scene where it's her wedding night with Drogo. And in the show, it is played quite rapey, <laughs> quite creepy. And in the, in the book... Um, a big part of the scene is, is her husband doesn't speak the common tongue, doesn't speak English. He just keeps repeating the word no. And in the book, it is made very clear that he is doing that so that she knows that he knows what that means. In the show, less so. Very much less so. It's, it's basically, it's kind of like an ultimate shutdown to her. I think some of that, I love him. Some of that might be a bit of Jason Momoa's performance because he is a very physically imposing dude. I know because I follow him on Instagram. That Shaboy's a puppy in real life. But like <laughs> if some dude came up to me and started acting like that, I would be terrified. So I, I, I guess that was sort of the beginning of the end of my relationship with the show. Because a lot of the time, and there's been a whole lot made about this. A lot of the time that there is excessive 
sexual violence against women. It's either not in the book or it, it is not portrayed that way in the book. Another very famous example of that, which was the real straw that broke the camel's back, was Jamie assaulting Cersei. Yeah, that was the part where I heard that that had happened, and I'm like, oh, no, we're not, we're not engaging with this any further. And there's a part of me that's like, I, incest is uncomfortable. It is difficult to portray positively, if at all. For good reason. <laughs> for good reason. But, but a huge part of Jamie Lannister's character is that he would never in a million years hurt his sister. Never. Not in a physical, emotional, or sexual way. Isn't that place where they put that in, like, at Joffrey's funeral? Yeah, in, in the book, it's, I mean, it's still over someone's grave. It's still really fucked up. But in the book, it is at their father, Tywin's wake, who they both kind of hated. Okay, so it's Tywin and not Joffrey. It's Tywin and not Joffrey. And it is, like, aggressively consensual. Like, it, it's, it's, there's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. And, and I get not wanting to take on the challenge of having to get that past HBO, because you can show whatever the fuck you want on HBO. They still might blow the whistle on that. <laughs> oh, I guess, like, I don't know. That's interesting, because I remember, now that you, you've jogged my memory, like, the scene at Joffrey's funeral ends up being very different than at Tywin's funeral. Yeah, because Jamie, if I'm remembering correctly, is not there when when Joffrey dies. No, he, he makes it to, I think, the funeral, like the ceremonies at the end, and it's very strange for him emotionally because that's his son, but he can't act, he can't ever acknowledge or or fully grieve because of the illicit nature of his relationship with his sister. And it's a very painful moment. Not only because, like, this man isn't allowed to to fully grieve, but also because Cersei's reaction is kind of weird. I don't necessarily remember exactly what that was, but it was, she was doing her, like, I am the queen of everything act, and it, it wasn't gonna fly that time. It really wasn't. But that actually dovetails into the next couple of things I want to talk about, Cersei's queen of everything act. I think the big thing I want to talk about with reconstruction and deconstruction has to do with the female characters mm -hmm. in, in A Song of Ice and Fire and also primarily to do with the Lannister siblings because I feel like that's where the real meat of that work comes in, it's especially with Cersei, Jaime, Tyrion. So for reconstruction, how would, how would we define reconstruction versus deconstruction? <sighs> Miss Librarian. Oh, good lord. I don't have a dictionary in front of me. I, I don't know. I'm going to take a well, shot. Not, not, not like a dictionary <laughs> definition. Just like what would your uh, definition I'm be? Gonna a, I'm going to take a shot in the dark as someone who's not taking a critical theory class uh, <laughs> and say that I see reconstruction as kind of taking what is there and maybe putting... It's like if you were going to build a structure, but then you're, like, building a different version of the structure, but, like, you can still tell that it's that thing. And then deconstruction is more like, let's take some dynamite and blow this up and see what happens. Right. 
That's not very eloquent, but... No, it's okay. To, to go on... It's not even really like a critical theory thing, I don't think, but like, it might be. I don't... I assume I didn't learn about <laughs> it. I guess my, my thing with reconstruction, to go with the sort of housing metaphor, deconstruction is just raising the ground this house laid upon and building something new. Um, reconstruction is is like house flipping. Yeah. Um, where you kind of take the the base and the structure of what's already there, but you furnish it and fill it out in a different way, which uh, we've talked about this off air, both in preparation for this episode and not, about how George R. R. Martin is, is kind of getting more well-known for that. Yeah. Particular style. Yes, I would definitely agree. Because I, I don't see, I see a very, I see a very loving portrayal of the fantasy genre. Yeah, because I, I think in, in his heart of hearts that he wears on his sleeve, he he is as much of a fanboy as as anybody for um, Middle Earth and Narnia and those sort of big cultural touchstones of the fantasy genre that we've keep going back to whenever anyone talks about him. Um, and I think what's interesting to me, I, I took a studies in medieval literature class for my bachelor's degree. And it was really interesting because uh, we kind of got to do whatever we wanted for our final project. Like we had to pitch it and write a prospectus, but we didn't have any kind of rules as to what we could really start with. Um, so I decided to take the tropes and kind of stock characters that I saw in French romantic literature um, and, and, and applied it to the characters that, that he was presenting, particularly in the first book, and, and to sort of see how they're the same. They're, they're built on that same base, but the way they've been built up is very different. And then to go to the, to the Lannister siblings with that, I think the biggest example, they're all good examples, but the biggest example, I think, is Tyrion. Mm -hmm. Who, there's a little person in one specific heroic romance that I unfortunately cannot remember right now, who is mentioned for two lines and does not speak. <laughs> and that's it. Uh... Like, there is no comparison. <laughs> he is one of the, like, that's what he's known for in the world of Westeros, is he he's kind of like, I always picture him almost as, as like a bard in D&D, &D. charisma through the roof, <laughs> where, where he's known as a talker, and how he makes up for what he lacks in stature with how he cultivates his intelligence and his charisma, and, and things like that, and that's how he sort of runs the place. To the best of his ability. Yeah, there's um, there's a character in one of the French heroic romances that I started by, forgive my French French pronunciation, but oh gosh, it's uh, Chrétien de Troyes. Yes, 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 yes. Eric and Anid. Uh, there is a dwarf character who is basically an antagonist for the first act. I'll call it an act of that story. And he actually takes a scourge and whips Eric across the face with it. And then Eric has to go defend his honor accordingly. <laughs> the other character 
the stock character of the White Knight and Jamie oh. is, I think, an, an interesting comparison. And, and something that is brought up throughout the course of his character arc that, that we the first thing we hear about him really is that he's called Kingslayer. Which I find interesting that, that he is sort of made to be this antagonist, a role that he kind of steps into when it pleases him for the first kind of half of his character arc before he gets his hand chopped off. But he, there's a, I don't remember if it's in the book, but I do remember it's in the show. There's a scene where he's talking to oh, somebody. There's a million people. Fill, fill in character here. And he asks Jamie... How many people have you killed? And he tells him. And his follow-up question is, how many people have you saved? And he says, half a million people. The population of King's Landing. By killing one man. And I thought that that was interesting to finally have him speak to that event in a way that is like, there's an open kind of japing mockery, I feel, between Jamie and Ned in the first book where they're both just thoroughly unimpressed with each other. <laughs> and even Ned Stark, whose family was killed by the Mad King, kind of looks down on him for it. And I think there's one particular line where Jamie's like, oh, well, if I stabbed him in the front, would you like me better? It's interesting because there's a historical... Uh, one of the other things I looked into was was knights in, in history, and in, in real history. And there's like a couple of tenets of knighthood that some of them make it over into George R. R. Martin's universe and some of them don't. The trait that that, that kind of ta- is, is speaking to is fealty to one's lord being absolutely crucial to a knight's sense of honor and their purpose. And that, that contract between lord and knight being being probably one of the if not the most important thing to knighthood and and to that sense of honor so to return to the whole um reconstruction versus deconstruction i feel like to go into the women in a song of ice and fire thank you george r r martin for writing female so many women so many women for writing female characters flat like flat out like thank you the bar is so low, but people keep tripping I on know. it. Like, I know. I know. Like, I, I had this conversation. To go back to Tolkien, I had this conversation with somebody about how, in the films at least, and I don't, correct me if I'm wrong, Hannah, I don't think the books are that much better. There are like three women with consistent speaking roles. No, it's really, it might even be, are you counting the Hobbit remakes? No. I'm just the original Lord of the Rings. But yeah, the Hobbit remake with Evangeline Lilly where she was like, because there are no women. In no, the there are no women in the Hobbit. Not really. I don't know. I can only remember two women. Because the, the women I'm thinking of are Galadriel, Eowyn, uh-huh. and Arwen. Yes. I honestly forgot Galadriel because she's like the stock prophetess. She very much is. I love Kate Blanchett and she's she's immortal and forever. But, like, she's very stock. Yeah. And and I wonder if we consider her a stock character looking back on it now. 
I don't know. That's a really good question. And I don't necessarily, I would say that female prophetesses like that are, she's very Oracle of Delphi. So I would say there's a case that that has been a stock since a million years. Yeah, like, like, and for some of them it doesn't work out, like Cassandra mm-hmm. in the myth of Troy. Yeah. yeah, I would say that's definitely fair then. I, but I do think that is a good question to ask, is how is our perception of things like Lord of the Rings changed by the fact that we are decades separated mm-hmm. from it? You could probably say the same thing about Chronicles of Narnia. Yeah, I mean, that's true, because I think we probably grew up with writers who grew up with those writers like we're at least a generation removed at this point Mm -hmm. like i think it's like because you can trace like okay here's tolkien here's all these other guys and then here's us reading those other guys yeah i'm gonna just full disclosure listeners i've never read lord of the rings i can quote all 12 hours of the movies at you i can i i do not know what it is it might be his voice, because there are some authors, I just have trouble with their voice. Jane Austen is one of them. I love listening to her and her writing, but I, I cannot sit down and focus on a page. I think it's the epic scenery, but I have no mind theater. You have no mind so. theater. But so I, I think with a lot with a lot of Lord of the Rings is I don't find George R. R. Martin's style even though they're just as long, if not longer, than all the Lord of the Rings books, I don't find them as intimidating. And when I sit down and I try to read Fellowship for the seventh time, I still feel, like, super intimidated. Like, it it does not matter how slow I read. I keep, like, missing things. Do you think maybe it's because Tolkien was a medieval scholar? Like, he was a professor who studied medieval texts, and he's a very... I would say he's a very dry, scholarly, super traditional voice. I think that's fair. I think that's a fair point. Because he has a, a a very famous piece on Beowulf. I think he translated it, too. Yeah, he translated. He did a translation of Gawain and the Green Knight. And I did not read that mm-hmm. translation. That is the one we read for my studies in medieval literature class. I do remember I read that. The Raffle. Forgive me, Raffle, if that is not, because you're obviously listening to this podcast. Uh, Raffle, I read the Raffle translation, and Raffle did not have many nice things to say about the Tolkien translation, and I'm, <laughs> and I was just guffawing reading the introduction, which medieval scholars are a, they're a, they're not afraid to roll up those shirt sleeves and start throwing. Yeah, punches. they're they're all obsessed with the um that. Duke de Berry, Trey Riche, Book or whatever. I don't know. I that was so bad. I, I don't understand anything <laughs> you just said. I'll I'll post I'll we'll do links or something, but there's there's yeah. a book of hours, and it's like the most famous book of hours that we have from that period. And they're all obsessed with that and the Bayou Tapestry. Another important piece of context we might want to talk about is uh, the fact that Tolkien was writing in and after, uh, I believe it was both world wars. Yeah, he that's a major. I think he said that that didn't impact his work, but it's like Tolkien, man. You can still see it. Dude, you can't. 
I feel like you can't fight in a world war and then have it not impact your life later, even if it's subconscious. Yeah, because it 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 it, it always read to me. I mean, it, it's kind of a again, kind of a stock thing. Now we talked a little bit last week about Star Wars, especially kind of showing this with the Empire mm-hmm. of like the big power that be sort of being a stand-in for the Nazis. Yeah. And how even if that maybe, even if he claims that's not a direct influence, it's still kind of easy to see Mm -hmm. in Sauron, especially like, you know, that one big power rolling over the land and taking over everything it can get its hands on. It's kind of hard to look at that and not see like Nazi Germany rolling over the map of Europe. Yeah, and I think that's an interesting difference between Tolkien and Martin because Martin, I think, kind of fully embraces like how if you look at medieval history and like what was going on, like people were fighting all the time. There were no like solid country lines. Like there was no France. There was no... There's sort of a Germany at one point. It gets, it's super complicated. Yeah, the only reason England was England was because it was an island. Yeah, it was, and even then, it Even then, it came and went. It's super complicated, like, everything that was going on and who held what powers. And honestly, kingdoms were generational. Like, maybe you have a guy that can hold a piece of land for, for, like, 20 or 30 years. But a lot of the time, once he died, his sons were incompetent and, and it was gone. Someone else took over. And just that that crazy, like, mothers as, what do they call it when the mom, the regents, like, that crazy regency. Oh, yeah, queen, queen regents. Because that, that actually brings up an interesting point if we talk about medieval history and how George R. R. Martin has quite prolifically talked about how he was influenced by the Wars of the Roses, which I was obsessed with for about two years. So I... I love that part of it. I don't think he... This is going to sound so stupid. Like, you don't know your own books, George. But, like, there are some of the one-to-ones that he points to that I'm like, okay, but also there's, like, this person that this could pretty easily represent. But that's also because a lot of the representations of people we see from that era have been passed down so often. (laughs) They may as well be fictional characters. A big example that I wouldn't shut up about for like a year and a half, was Richard III, (laughs) who I think is most clearly represented. For those of you who don't know, Richard III, if you've seen the Shakespeare play, you don't really know what happened, but you kind of do. And his reign kind of went to shit after like two years because he started purportedly getting like super paranoid and like his court was like a revolving door of people. And... But but he was told that he took the throne to prevent the rule and the regency of uh, his nephew, who would have been Edward V. I think he was, I think he might, some people technically consider him Edward V. I don't know. I haven't looked into it recently enough. But I think we see a lot of that in Stannis Baratheon. Mm-hmm. And his sort of, you know, he has an eye, he is, I think they, they mention... I don't remember who it is, but it's somebody kind of close to the main story talks about the three Baratheon brothers. And I always saw that as like the three sons of York. Yeah. 
So that's definitely a reconstruction. I mean, he's even said, hey, here's this historical event. Yeah. One thing I do want to tie in that actually ties into who George R. R. Martin kind of sort of based Tyrion on, which he says was Richard III. I think you could make that argument if you're looking at Shakespeare's Richard III, who is sort of the conniving, physically disabled and disfigured mastermind behind the scenes. If that's, I would say, though, to be fair, that's probably one of the best known portrayals of Richard III that exist. Yeah, I think it, it was the only one for a very long time. It's it's interesting to me when you when you look at the whole everything that influenced this work. I do think Henry the Seventh is supposed to be Daenerys, and the person who claims this ancestry and who claims this throne, without really understanding what it means, mm-hmm. and who takes a foreign army and decides they're just going to march on things. Well. To be fair, historically speaking, since I have been slogging my way through Knights in History and Legend by Constance Bretagne Bouchard, I had to like look at the book. Bouchard. Oh God, I don't know. She's <laughs> she's based in Akron. I doubt she pronounced her names like that. I doubt. I, I yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Miss Bouchard. You're probably like. Not listening to this, but if you are, I'm, I'm going to at her, honestly. No, I have some problems with Constance. <laughs> Hashtag, I have some problems. Constance. Uh, anyway, <laughs> I made that as creepy as possible. But using mercenaries to fight your wars was actually super common. That is a super common thing. Like, you probably didn't have that many of your own men, but you... You hired Welsh archers and, like, some other people, and they fought your wars for you, and that was a pretty common deal. Yeah, and that's kind of in Game of uh, Song of Ice and Fire with the many and sundry factions of sellswords yeah. that Danny hires, in essence. Let's talk about Danny yeah. for a little bit. She's interesting to me. I didn't mind taking the break from her in Feast for Crows, just because... I find it very interesting how George R. R. Martin chose to write this book in close third person pretty much exclusively. Mm-hmm. Because it lets you show a lot of the story and a lot of the action while still maintaining some kind of unreliability with the, with the narrators that it is kind of at your leisure that you get to showcase when that comes into play. And I think with Danny, that really kind of starts in Dance with Dragons, where she leaves and flies off on, I believe it's Drogon. And we're left with Sir Barristan Selmy, the knight of all knights, um, who is trying to sort of hold down the fort for a while. And, and, and we, because we're constantly in her perspective, and she, I mean, you have to have some kind of ego to want a throne as much as she does. Like, regardless of how much you feel you deserve it because of your family name or your power or whatever, like, you have to want it because you think it should be yours, regardless of how you come to that decision. So I I think because of that and because she's very preoccupied with things that, you know, like, 16-year-old girls are usually preoccupied with, like, <laughs> who she's boning down with and what the hell is going on with all of this stuff that she has to now figure out. 
and dealing with all the trauma that she's gone through that it isn't until we get another point of view of someone who has seen not necessarily this kind of rulership, but who has seen people this young try to take on all that responsibility that we really see that she doesn't really have a lid on it. Yeah. As much as she thinks she does. Right. <laughs> and that choice is, is interesting to me because I don't think it's there to undermine the work that she wants to do. I don't think it's there to say that she's stupid. I think it's really kind of serves a good purpose that is reflected upon a lot of char narrator characters in the book of regardless of who you are or how far you think you see, you are limited by your own perception. Yeah, I think we see that with Danny more than almost anybody else because she's so young. She is basically conquering foreign lands where she doesn't know the culture. She doesn't understand the power structures. She's heading a tribe of people where, again, she is brand new to the culture and the power structures. And I think she does pretty good for being 16. But yeah, I still think there's a little bit of... I There's a white savior trope applied to Danny where pulling back... You can kind of see that, like, maybe she doesn't really have any business just doing whatever yeah, she just wants. just strolling in. Because she actually, there's a system of slavery in place, and she frees the slaves in one of the areas that she's in. And it mm -hmm. actually makes everything so much worse for the slaves, because she mm -hmm. doesn't understand the social and cultural structures that are in place. And she basically removes any protection that this vulnerable class of people has and doesn't mm -hmm. and isn't able to replace it with with something. Pretty much anything. Yeah, and she's like, oh, oh, this did not go as planned. Exactly. And and I think she's a good example that that again is kind of reflected in a lot of characters. Where you can have the best of intentions, but what you want to do is not what's needed. Cersei is kind of like that, but maybe not with the best intentions. Right. Cersei to me, and this is something I've kind of arrived to, Cersei to me functions as a critique of the capital S, capital F, capital C, strong female character. AKA a female character that acts exactly the way a man would. Because that is her whole thing. I feel like throughout some of the some of the parts of the books, is especially because Jamie is her twin, mm -hmm. and they were not able to be told apart when they were very young. How she's like, well, why does he get a sword, and I get like a sewing needle? Why is he allowed to do all this stuff and I'm not? Just because I'm a woman, like what kind of bullshit is that? So she spends so much of her life, I really think, trying to be exactly like her father. Yeah, and that in no uncertain terms, paints her in a very unflattering light that I feel like is very, very real to not just the modern female experience, but like a female experience for hundreds of years, where any positive trait that is seen in a man makes you a bitch. Right. And I people really didn't did not like her on the show. Like everyone, right? Like that's oh, a yeah, thing. That's that a people... whole thing. Like, people did not like a lot of the female characters. Oh, my God. If I have to, if I have to defend fucking 13-year-old kid Sansa Stark to another neckbeard on the internet, I'm going to lose my mind. 
Yeah, it's it's rough out there being a woman in fantasy land. It really is because, and I think this is one of the reasons I really like how we wait. He waited until the fourth book to give us Cersei's narration because even though it obviously does not make what she does okay, like going through her chapters, I was like, I totally get this, and I and I get this reaction to things, and I get this obsession with male-coded traits that are seen as positive in men, like ambition, and how her portrayal not being the prim and proper wife or daughter is thrown back in her face. Like, like the biggest insult her little brother Tyrion can throw at her is that she's a mother, like she's the mother of madness. Oh man, that's not loaded. <laughs> no, it's not loaded at all. So yeah, to me, Cersei, I, I think, I think some of the conversation kind of tends toward people thinking good characters have to be good people or good acting. Yeah, I oh, and to talk about other characters, I mean, there are so many from Cersei being a mother and that being, I don't know a weakness almost or like that is what women were supposed to do mm-hmm. it's really interesting to see how all these different women operate within this this power structure differently for better or for worse yes i found that very refreshing in reading the book about how the women were all very distinct mm-hmm. because sadly that's not something we get all the time no and i mean if you you can contrast, I think the most obvious foil for Cersei is probably Sansa and Marjorie, who are very, they're young, they're beautiful maidens who are well-mannered and do everything that they're supposed to and meet all those traditional female, you know, expectations, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I think that's the best word for it. They meet all those expectations and how... They are, in Sansa's case, disillusioned at one point, thinking that that was how they were going to make their way in the world. And I think in Marjorie's case, it's really her saving Grace. Because Cersei has her deposed, sort of, at one point, right? Pretty much. And I think the line specifically that's applied to Sansa is, the world is not one of your songs, little bird. Right. And I think that's a direct um, reference to kind of the match in our world would be the French chivalric romance of these ideal knights who do service to the to their ladies and always keep their promises and protect the weak and the small. And I think Sansa finds out that that's not the case. Right. It it really isn't. And she gets disillusioned so hard with when her father dies because she believes and even i remember the scene correctly cersei believes that joff's not gonna kill him yeah that that surprises everybody (laughs) yeah like the humiliation of it is enough Mm -hmm. in for for cersei because she because she 100 expects and knows that ned will stay down when he's kicked at least in that kind of arena joffrey doesn't care He's an example of a character who's cruel for the sake of being cruel. He's cruel because he can. He likes having that that power. And I know people he like that. He gets off on the power. 
Yeah. And I think Cersei is a little bit like that, but it's for a different reason, I think. Like, it's not just about the power, even though it is sort of about the power. It's also about... I think it becomes about the power. I think it's also about security and being able to finally have agency. Like, she can have agency if she has power. And I feel like with Cersei, we're constantly... She's constantly trying to demonstrate that she has power and agency and people are constantly undermining her and showing her, no, you don't. Know your place. Yeah, and and, and the, I think the, the two big disillusions, one of which happens metaphorically on screen, one of them doesn't, is Cersei being married to Robert. Mm-hmm. And like the first time, like on their wedding night, he doesn't he doesn't call her by her name. He calls her Liana. Ugh. Which is so gross. There are so many, side note, there are so many men in this, in these books who are, like, obsessed with dead women that it's yeah, bizarre. Yeah, it's weird. Anyway. And the, sec- <laughs> the, and the second disillusion happens in Feast for Crows and Dance with Dragons of her being made to walk naked through the street. Right. After having her hair cut. Like, that part... It felt very visceral, that whole part. Like, and I wonder if I had that reaction, like, as a woman. Oh, I think definitely I did, because she talks about, like, how how she has a middle-aged body. Yeah, because she's in, like, her 40s, right? Yeah, she she talks about that, like, how they have stripped away any protective veneer she has been able to construct for herself. And it's all out there, the stretch marks, the sagging breasts. And, like, that's a thing, as a modern woman that like you that you are basically taught that you need to be have anxieties about is mm-hmm. is when your your body is is supposed to look one way for forever i really would like to talk about brienne especially yes please do please talk about brienne first of all george r r martin i love you for giving us a, a competent female knight who god yeah that's her identity uh, and I also won. So I've been reading Knights in History and Legend by our friend uh, Constance, right? Mm-hmm. And so Constance. Our good friend of the show, Constance. So in Knights in History and Legend, uh, she says that there were not women knights or that they were at least very rare because women, one, she does acknowledge that and she's the main contributor i'm not gonna say that she did this on her own but they said that there aren't female knights for two reasons one because of the societal constraints placed on women during that time right your your expectation for you as a woman in the medieval period was that you would get married and that someone would take care of you and that's really the most that you could hope for and that's if you're not like a peasant because they would have to work but if you're a royal lady you're going to have to hope someone marries you or you're just going to sulk around your dad's castle for forever. (laughs) I'm an expert castle skulker. And second, the reason that women couldn't be knights is because they did not have the upper body strength to be knights. And that is where I really take issue because you're going to look at me in my face. You're going to look at me in my face and and tell me that if we suited up Serena Williams in a in a 
thing of armor and gave her a sword that she couldn't have kicked some ass with given I'm loving I'm loving everything you're putting down right now. You're telling me right now. Like Serena Williams is honestly like my ideal. Like if I was like, I'm gonna make this person a knight, that's who I would pick. Serena Williams is an IRL Wonder Woman. No, she is. Like, she's so I just love her so much. I think that's patently false. I think if you gave women the chance to actually develop some upper body strength and mm-hmm. not just made them do embroidery all day. I bet yeah. some peasant women could have kicked some lordly ass were, back in the day. I definitely, there were definitely peasant women who were stronger than those rich dudes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you had to be pretty strong to like wear that armor and carry around those weapons. But at the same time, like. I've seen I've seen some paintings of some peasant women carrying like entire bales of hay around. Like I think they got this. Like I can't do that. Yeah. I'm weak for shit. Yeah. I feel like bale of hay is roughly equivalent to a big axe. But anyway, I think that was my main issue and there still today exists this idea that women cannot be a knight. It's so male coded in people's mm-hmm. minds that it, it you can't get around it and and you hear the same argument that women don't have the upper body strength that you know women have these constraints and whatever blah 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 but okay my good my soulmate back recently <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't know that he's my soulmate uh he released a music video for the song off of his new album colors called up all night and I didn't realize this was a pun until I was checking my notes and realized I wrote K-N-I-G-H-T. But he has like a teenage girl in the music video. She turns into a knight. Like she, she's stomping through this party and it's like a real rager. And she basically gets at one point she has a suit of armor and she's got a sword and a shield. And she does some drugs and turns into a car at the end. <laughs> In typical back fashion. Yeah, I don't, yeah, but that, she turns into a car. But she saves, like, her boyfriend from the party. He, like, passes out drunk on a pool table and wets himself, and she has to go in and, and fish him <laughs> out of the party. And then she turns into a car, and he surfs on the top of the car, and they drive off into the sunset. That sounds like the greatest music video of all time. <laughs> it was pretty. That's why I think I texted you after I watched it and was like, I think Beck is my soulmate. I'm not. You did. I remember that. <laughs> I think I screenshot it. But anyway, the comments on that video, they're buried now. I tried to go back and find them to like screenshot them for our listeners because I'm, I'm sure they're interested in misogynistic comments on the internet. Oh, yes. If they listen to this show, they probably are. But someone was like, a woman was like, oh, hey, it's nice to see a woman being portrayed as a knight because you normally see the woman as the damsel in distress and the man comes in and rescues her. And it's just, she just said it was nice to see a change. Yeah, she didn't say any other kind of thing, just that it was nice. Yeah, she's like, oh, that's that's nice. Like, I'm I'm happy to see that. And even less than that, it was so innocuous. Like the most like, oh, I'm I really enjoyed this portrayal of women. And every neck beard on the oh internet Oh god, don't say that on the internet. Had something to say. 
about women being knights and it is 2017 and i will send serena williams to your house to to show you the error of your ways i will she'll do it too serena williams will be challenging you all to a joust she will challenge you to trial by combat (laughs) she is her own champion (laughs) And and we will see how that goes. And you can write me a four-page report on how Serena Williams has shown you the error of your ways. God, if <laughs> only. She would make even more money than she already does if she would just hire herself out. Like a I would pay her. her. I would hire her. I would hire her for I everything. Would, I would give her so much real money. <laughs> oh, she she's so great. Okay, anyway. Yeah, so anyway, that's a big segue into... <laughs> Brienne of Tarth and how in that way that that those expectations they live in in the George R. R. Martin A Song of Ice and Fire universe. I don't obviously yes. Martin doesn't actually think that because he gave his characters like Brienne and Arya and even Cersei who are subverting these things all the time. But Brienne who is who is big she is ugly. So I really like Brienne because the character in the book, I really like her because she takes all these things and she fully embraces these things about herself, even though it's painful and it's it's difficult. Mm-hmm. And she literally defeats all of her suitors in combat, which is horribly embarrassing for them. Mm-hmm. And goes out and and is a knight in the world. Isn't the first time we meet her? Doesn't she kick Loras Terrell's ass? I'm pretty sure. Yeah. Who is supposedly the knight of the flowers, the greatest of the great, and she makes him fall flat on his ass. But yeah, so Brienne, I really like because she's a woman. And she she isn't what a woman is supposed to be in this time and place, and she gets to go out and kind of carve a place. For herself, and I think mm-hmm. it's really interesting when she and Jamie meet up. OTP of my heart, oh, because she's such a she's so different from Cersei, and she's such a good person. Like she's capital G good cinnamon roll. She's so lawful good in in the best way. Yeah, and she's all about protecting like the little people, and she goes out on that quest with oathkeeper that sword that joffrey has but it's for joffrey it's like a chopping off head sword because i promised i'd make you pay and with brienne it's very much like i'm a good person who will do what they say yeah it's very much kind of living up to the words of the night's watch where it's like i am the shield that guards the realms of men and like all that stuff where like with her like statements like that they're not like a line no. Like, it really is what she believes. No, and I think with Brienne, it's even more powerful because people don't want her. They don't oh, yeah. They don't want that from her. They want her to know her place. And I, I really like that there's so many women in this book who are like, you know what? We're not doing that. We're going to, I'm going to do me and you all are going to have to deal with that. Yeah, I feel Jamie and Brienne is an example of how you can do the woman rehabilitating the man trope in a good way. Because I I really think a lot of his character arc is facilitated by his relationship with her. Right, because finally here, I think Jamie has been around a lot of people who talk the talk, but aren't actually, you know, good 
good knights. They're, you know, they're regular people who are a mixture and maybe tend a little bit toward the corrupt side because Mm -hmm. he talks a lot about how they basically let the Mad King rape his wife every night and they just let it happen. They didn't do anything. And, like, I feel like that's what finally drove him to kill him more than, like, anything else is he couldn't live with it. Yeah, he couldn't be with being known as the person who stood by and let all that stuff happen like he would rather be the person who ended it even if that would make him live in a kind of infamy right because breaking fealty with your lord is a is a big no-no yeah and 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 that's something i think is explored quite a bit in these books Mm -hmm. is the idea of loyalty and where should it lie that is i mean it, it is it's like the war of the five kings or something there's a king in every corner so who do you be faithful to? To a lord? To your god? To the, your land? To the whoever your other liege lord says you are? Because that's a big thing in the war in the north. Mm-hmm. Is people who, especially after Rob dies, and John's kind of what they've got. Who do, do, do you go with this person because of their blood or their name? Or do you go with them because you think they're the right choice? Or do you think that they can get you the power that you exactly. want? It's it's the whole thing um, Peter Baelish says, chaos is a ladder. Oh, Peter. Peter Baelish. <sighs> you, you are also obsessed with a dead woman. I cannot with you. I can't you. with him. He's so bad. He's so, he's so creepy. Oh, God. I do like that he just kicked a woman off of a cliff like it was no big deal. Like it was NBD. Yeah, I, I respect that. I really enjoy Peter <laughs> Baelish as a nice guy. <laughs> oh, you went there. Because he, he is. I know, but he it hurts me. And it is, like, I think the whole thesis of this episode is hashtag George Martin ain't slick. And I don't think he tries to be, which is delightful to me, because I feel like so many writers try, try so, so, so hard to be to be subvertive and to be reconstructive and deconstructive. And he just throws his all in and is like, this is just what I'm like. And this is the world that we're going to be playing around in for a bit. And that about wraps it up for this episode of Remedial Studies. Thanks for geeking out with us about A Song of Ice and Fire by George R.R. Martin. We think he would geek out with us. Oh, he definitely would. Uh, So next time we're going to talk about The Shape of Water, which is Guillermo del Toro's new new film coming out December 8th. And that episode will come to you, episode 4 will come to you on December 12th. So if you like what you hear and you want to give us a shout out, we're at Remedial Studies on Twitter. You can find us at remedialstudiespodcast.tumblr.com. And uh, if you want to send us an email, we take recommendations, constructive criticism, I say guardedly, <laughs> and, and just general fangirl squeeze at remedialstudiespodcast at gmail.com um yeah this week i wanted to call attention to somebody it was the first person to send us a tumblr message 
and it was so nice and so sweet. It was, please forgive me if I'm pronouncing your URL wrong. It's um, numo.tumblr.com, N-U-M-O-U. Um, sent us something that was very sweet, and it, it was just, I talk about this every episode, but we got almost a thousand downloads in on our second episode. We might actually hit it in the time between when we're recording this and when you hear it. And like that, that number, like I know in the grand scheme of like how many people listen to podcasts, it's not a very big number, but like to us who record, that's like a, that's, that's crazy. That's a giant number. It is insane. I looked up our stats like before we started recording and at least like one person in 59 countries has listened to our show or downloaded our show. And, like, in the United States, it's, like, 47 states in the District of Columbia. We're coming for you, Dakotas. <laughs> and Alaska. But it's, like, it is mind-boggling to me that that many people would would be in any way interested to anything we have to say. And, like, that yeah. that just is very humbling and very encouraging to me. If, if though, if, if you all could prove that you are not bots <laughs> by reviewing, liking, commenting. Just prove to me that you're not a robot. Like I I'm I'm not sure. Yes. Be like be like Numo. Express your pleasure <laughs> or displeasure with the show accordingly. Right. Maybe not displeasure. Maybe not displeasure. Definitely. Again, concrete only, no flames, thank you. <laughs> Uh, yeah, but I'm not, I, it's, it's so great to have reached even that many people when we thought it was going to be six people. Yeah, which two of them I don't think have listened to it yet. Oh, yeah, but that's okay. That's but, okay. They're still yeah, reading so the Yeah, so it's book. just, we're, we're really excited. And thank you. Uh, so this has been Remedial Studies, so until next time, fare thee well, potential bots. <laughs>